believing you may have eternal life. So anytime we come to any passage in the Gospel of John, the one thing we have to have in the back of our minds, why is John writing this? Why is the Holy Spirit inspiring this? And the reason is, believer or non-believer coming to this text, the Apostle John and the Holy Spirit wants you to believe that they have identified the Christ, they have identified the Son of God, and it is this man, Jesus. The reason why this makes this passage spectacular is because here we have an account, and and the text we're going to look at this morning, we have an account of Jesus having a conversation with this woman for the specific purpose of revealing to her who he is. We get to eavesdrop on this one who is the center of the gospel. This one who is the, the means and the ends of all gospel enterprise. And we get to see him revealing the gospel to this sinful Samaritan woman. This one who is the fulfillment of all scripture and all prophecy revealing himself to this adulterous Samaritan woman. We see Jesus specifically seek this woman out for the explicit purpose of shining the light of the gospel into her darkened heart. We get to watch. We get to listen as the Christ, the Son of God, reveals his true identity to this woman. We get to watch him. The evangel, the good news, we get to watch him evangelize. And what makes this even more interesting is especially as we get to verse 16, which will be close to the end of our time here this morning, we're going to see just how differently Jesus' evangelism methods are from what we're normally told is the way that that we should do it. Um, In fact, I've, I've heard it said before that if Jesus was to go to a modern mainstream seminary today, he would fail his evangelism class because because of the things that he's saying. And there are other examples in the text, but we're going to get into that when we get into verse 16. But what we're going to see here is Jesus, when he comes to this woman, he doesn't worry about whether this woman is comfortable with what he's saying or not. Jesus isn't so concerned with trying to figure out what this woman's so-called felt needs are. Because Jesus understands, far from her felt needs, she has a deeper need. She has a need that even she, she may have felt it at times, know it's there on some superficial level, but she has no idea what that need is and no hope of filling it herself. A longing, a, a desire that no earthly substance could ever satisfy. A thirst that could not be quenched. As we read this passage, and as we look at this woman's struggle and conversation with our Savior, I hope that we leave here this morning knowing that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, who quenches our eternal thirst for Yahweh, for the one true God. So we get some context. We're going back up to verse 1. In the first six verses, we get some context of this conversation that we're looking at. It says in verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, 
although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on these first six verses, but there is one specific thing I want to focus on. So you have, you have Jesus leaving Judea and departing for Galilee, and ultimately... He's moving ever closer to the cross where he would eventually be crucified. But we have this interesting statement in verse 4 where it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. And this is one of those verses, if you're reading through in your daily readings or studies, you could very easily, and I know I have many times with many other verses, just read over that and think absolutely nothing about it. But it's actually a very important verse. And the reason it's important is because geographically, it just isn't true. So you have Judea and you have Galilee, and I don't remember which one was on top and which one was on bottom, but right in the middle, you have Samaria. And most Jews, at least the upstanding, uh, quote-unquote, religious Jews, instead of passing through Samaria to get to where they're going, would actually go around. So instead of going straight from Judea to Galilee through Samaria, they, go, they would go around and they would add two to three days, I think one writer said, to their journey. Why would they do that? Well, the, and we're going to look at this more later on, but just the simple answer, they hated the Samaritans. In their eyes, the Samaritans were worse than scum. They were traitors. They were half-breeds. They didn't deserve the time of day. And if you got anywhere near them, then you could consider yourself unclean. So geographically, it's not true that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, and actually, if he wanted to be seen as this upright, righteous, religious man by the religious elite, he would not have passed through Samaria. But Jesus had to pass through Samaria, not for geographical reasons, but for theological reasons, for divine reasons. Jesus had to pass through Samaria because before the foundations of the world, this woman had a divine appointment with the Holy Son of God. Jesus knew not only was he going to pass through Samaria, he was going to this specific town called Sychar in Samaria. And not only this specific town, but he is going to this one specific well in this specific town to have this conversation with this one specific woman. The omnipotent, omniscient, the, the one that John opens up by saying he is the Word. He, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He knew this was where this woman was going to be. And he sought this woman out for the sole purpose of revealing himself to her. That is the sovereignty and the love of our Savior. Jesus had to go through Samaria. And so we come to verse 7. Jesus is wearied. You see him in his humanity being, being wearied from the, from the journey. And we come to verse 7. It says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus comes to this well, and very naturally, he's, he's thirsty because he's been traveling a long ways, and this woman is coming to get her water for her daily needs. She's coming with a bucket or a jar, and she's going to fill it up and take it back and use it. And there's this man there. We, we don't know what maybe she thought about this man. He's just some, some guy who's wandered in, and she doesn't know anything about him. As far as she knows, he knows nothing about her. But this man looks at her. She's a, he's obviously a Jewish man, and he looks at her and he says, give me a drink. And you can tell by her response, she's taken aback. She's surprised. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Because already in the mind of a Jewish man, this or a typical Jewish man, this woman already has two strikes against her. Because in that culture, women were not seen to be Um, They were not seen to be honored. They were not seen to be um, the way the Bible reveals it to us, that both men and women are made in the image of God and deserve honor and respect for who they are. They had twisted that truth, and women were looked down upon in the Jewish community. But not only was she a woman, but she was a Samaritan woman. So for Jesus to talk to a woman would be a little strange, a little odd, a little unorthodox. For Jesus to talk to a Samaritan woman, that's scandalous. That's just not heard of. That's not done. So she's surprised. How is it that you, a Jew, talk to me, a Samaritan woman? This is why, by the way, the hatred between the Samaritans, the Jews, and the Samaritans, just as a side note, this is why Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan had such an effect. Because in the mind of the Jews, good and Samaritan, they don't go together. That's an oxymoron. To make the Samaritan the hero of the story, that's... No, no. They're, they're so, to make the Samaritan the hero of the story over the, the, um, the Levite and over the priest, uh-uh, no. Samaritans are, are nasty, nasty people. So she says, she says basically to him, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? I'm guessing you have no idea who I am. You have no idea who, the world, who in the world you're talking to. Because she knows, not only is she a Samaritan, not only is she a woman, but she knows the life she's living. She knows the reputation she has. And she's thinking, if you had any idea who it is you're talking to, there is no way that you would waste your time with me. And then I love Jesus' response in verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus' response basically is, yeah, I know exactly who you are. You have no clue who I am. You have no worldly idea who it is that you're talking to. Because if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was that was speaking the words to you, give me a drink, then you would have said, no, please, give me this living water. Because Jesus says, I don't think you know who I am, because if you did, you would be coming to me for something a lot more substantial than this 
physical water. This, this H2O that you think is so important and so necessary. Now, just as an explanatory note where it says, if you knew the gift of God, there's a, a couple of different ways to understand that phrase, the gift of God. Some people think that it's just referring to the Torah or what they had as the Word of God at that time, the, the revealed will and the revelation of God. So, for example, in, in John 3, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So with this understanding, um, Jesus is, is... I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? He's saying, do you not understand the Word of God? Do you not understand the Torah, the gift that has been given to you? So Jesus is saying, um, if you've known the gift of God, if you've known the Torah then you would know who I am. Or, the other interpretation is Jesus, uh, this gift of God is just referring to the eternal life that can only be given through Jesus, and only once it is received can this person truly see Jesus. So, in other words, saying, if you had that eternal life, if you had that gift of God, if your eyes were opened by the Holy Spirit, then you know exactly who I am. So there's two different ways of understanding that the writers go back and forth. But either way you read it, the point is this. In the blindness of this person's heart, this woman who had been darkened by sin, sitting before her was the Son of God, the glory of the Lord wrapped in human flesh. And all she saw was a tired, thirsty Jewish man. A tired, thirsty Jewish man making this bold and seemingly ridiculous statement. Her ears, they were, they were spiritually deaf. She didn't comprehend, didn't understand what he meant when he said, I would give you living water. She's focusing on the physical, uh, she's focusing on the physical and in her assessment, she scoffs. She says, living water. Right, look, look with me in verse 11 for her response. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and this well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons, as did his livestock. Can you hear the disbelief in her voice, the, the ridicule she's throwing at Jesus? Here you are a man. You, can't, you didn't even bring anything to draw this water with yourself. You have to ask me, a Samaritan woman, to draw this water for you. And now you're claiming to be able to give me this so-called living water. Where, where are you going to get that living water from? How is you going to draw that up? Are you better than Jacob, or the patriarch Jacob, the one, we all, the one we all look to? If he wanted water, he had to do the work, he had to dig the well, and then even after he dug the well, he had to pull the water up himself to feed himself and his sons and his livestock. Every single person has to do the exact same thing. Who do you think you are? What is this so-called living water that you're offering me? Maybe, maybe this is why you, you stoop so low to talking to a Samaritan woman. Maybe you're just a loony. What, what are you talking about, this living water? And I think it's safe to say that with Jesus' response to her, she hears the most compelling words that she has ever heard up to this point. Because Jesus said to her in verse 13, 
Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, look, you, you don't understand. You're coming to this well with your jar and you're going to fill it up and you're going to make that long trek back home and you're going to go home and you're going to drink that water. You're going to use it to, to wash whatever you wash. You're going to use it to bathe in. You're going to do whatever you need to do and then tomorrow, come this time tomorrow, you're going to be coming with another empty jar. You're going to be filling that jar up again and you're going to be doing it all over again day after day after day never ending, you're going to continuously have to replenish that water jar. Why? Because you're going to get thirsty again. Your thirst is not going to be quenched. He says, but I can give you, I can give you water that will quench a thirst for all eternity. What I am offering you is not just water that will quench your thirst for now, not just water that will, that will meet your, your, your right now longings and desires and then tomorrow you will have to come again and again and again. No, I will give you a water, a living water that will abolish thirst forever. And Jesus touches a nerve with this woman that I think resonates in the heart of every single person. Because we try to use finite things to fill an infinite void in our heart. We try to use finite stuff, here, earthly stuff, to fill the void of eternity that's in our hearts, and we never stay satisfied. We just say, oh, I just need one more whatever, fill in the blank. Just one more and I'll be happy. Just one more dollar. Just, just one more drink. Just one more car. Just just one more kid, just one more whatever it is that you're looking at at that moment as your functional God, this thing that will make my life completely better, I'll never need anything else, and then you get it, and you're thirsty again. It wasn't enough. You can't get the satisfaction. You're left completely empty, completely unsatisfied. Because in a world without Jesus, there is never enough and satisfaction is completely impossible the richest the smartest the best looking the most popular person in the world will be completely unsatisfied without the one true God without Yahweh himself and if you don't believe me just ask Solomon go back on your own time and read the book of Ecclesiastes it's really an amazing thing to do because here you have Solomon Solomon has everything he could ever want. He has money, he has women, he has parties, he has all the, all the wine, all the liquor he could possibly want. He, he, could, he is leader of the nation of Israel when it is at peace and when it is at rest and when it is at its wealthiest. He could snap his fingers and a man could either become the richest man or the man could die. He had power. Everything that could possibly make anyone happy, Solomon had it. Yet he opens the book of Ecclesiastes. And what's he say? Vanities of vanities. All this 
insanity. And then he goes through this long experiment of, of maybe I can find purpose and wisdom, and if I learn everything I could possibly learn, maybe then I'll be satisfied. Vanity of vanities. And maybe I can find purpose in, in, in just, just mindless, frivolous joy and just throwing all these parties and drinking all this wine, and he's sitting there, and he's intellectually thinking through this as he's doing these things. And he comes to the end of all things, and he says, it's useless. It's empty. It's vanity. All of this, and yet the reverberation of the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity. It's nothingness. It's emptiness. It is pointless. Without Christ, the revelation of the one true God, the glory of Yahweh, anything we do in this life without Christ is pointless. God has put eternity in the heart of man and we try to satisfy it with non-eternal things and it's just useless. It's pointless. So Jesus said to this woman, this water, this water that you're coming to give, this physical substance that you're coming to fill your jar up and go take it back and then come again and take it back, this water will never completely satisfy your physical thirst. It will never be enough to finally and eternally quench your thirst. But I can give you a living water that will not only quench and satisfy your spiritual longing and your spiritual thirst, but it will turn into a never-ending, ever-flowing spring that will well into eternal life. And he says the same thing to us. He says, stop. Stop chasing the wind. Stop trying to satisfy your longing for Yahweh with lesser, finite gods that, that will never be able to satisfy you. That will keep you wanting more and more and, and, and drink. Stop all of that and come to me, the Christ, the Son of God, and drink of the living water that I offer you. And what is this living water that he offers? Well, D.A. Carson puts it like this. I think it's the best explanation of what we're talking about when we talk about this living water. He says in his commentary on John that this living water is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world can provide. This is the living water that will quench your thirst, that will satisfy your longing. And now, Jesus has this woman's attention. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. To hear the hope, she's, she's daring to hope. She, she thought he was crazy before, but now when he says this, she's, he's touched a nerve and she's thinking, wait a minute, what if, what if it's true? What if it's right? Sir, if, if you really have this water... I would love to not have to come here time and time again. I'd love not to have to walk past the judgmental glances and, and the whispers that aren't so quiet and to fill this water jar up and take it all the way back. If you truly have this living water, could you give it to me? She's, she's still focusing on the physical. At this point, she's, she's not wanting to confront or to deal with the sinner in her life. and Instead, 
She's wanting to just avoid the social consequences of her sin. She's not wanting to confront her sin. She's wanting to be comfortable in her sin and to be able to get away from the consequences that her sin has placed her in. She says, please give me this water. It would make things so much easier on me. And then Jesus says to her in verse 16, Go, call your husband, and come here. Now here is where, as I said before, Jesus would fail our evangelism classes. And this is where we fail true evangelism. Because think about it, he, he makes this offer, he says, I have this living water, and she says, you can almost see her panting. She says, sir, please, if you have this water, give it to me. And he says, okay, pray this prayer, be dunked in water, and now you're a follower of me. No, he doesn't. He says, go call your husband. Jesus, what does her husband have to do with it? She's buying what you're selling. You've got her hook, line, and sinker. Just get her to sign the dotted line. What is Jesus doing here? Why does he say, go call your husband? He says, go call your husband because he is doing what he knows has to be done. He's not satisfied with her just longing to have comfort and just longing to... to be relieved from the consequences of her sin. He's digging in and he's getting to the heart of her sin. He's getting to the sin of her heart. Just like in the chapter before this, with Nicodemus, Jesus had to make him face his, his sinful self-righteousness and his wicked pride. This woman had to be confronted with her sinful life. She had to know that what she was doing was against the commands of the Holy God. She had to feel the weight of her rebellion against a just and holy God. Because only then would she be able to forsake her sin and cling to her hope found in the Son of God, found in the Christ. So as I said, this is where many of us fell in evangelism. Because think about it, if we want people to long for Jesus if we want people to cry out for His mercy and to cry out for His grace and His salvation, they have to understand the full weight of their situation without Christ. Our message to this lost and dying world cannot be, Jesus can make your life a little bit easier. Jesus can just lighten the load a little bit. Jesus can make you a little bit more comfortable. Our message has to be, has to be you in your sin in the state that you are born in and that you continue in until the spirit moves you are an enemy of God you face the wrath of God and you will face the wrath of God unless you repent and you turn away from your sin and you turn to God in Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world we need to ask ourselves, and we need to ask ourselves honestly, why? Just think, put you in this position. Why would you ever cry out for mercy from judgment when you don't think you've done anything wrong that deserves judgment? Why would you tremble at the judgments of God when you've deceived yourself into thinking that all you've done is earned His goodness, earned His favor? Why would anyone ever feel why would anyone ever fear hell 
if they think they deserve heaven. It just doesn't make sense. If we want people to long for the springs of the living water welling up to eternal life, then we have to make them understand their thirst. We have to convince them that they're thirsty in the first place. We have to convince them that the more they try to satisfy that thirst with anything other than reconciliation with the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit, then all they're doing is they're heaping sin upon sin, they're heaping wrath upon wrath, and one day they will face a holy, just God, and they will face that holy and just God in their sins. People need Jesus, but before we even get to that, they need to know that they need Jesus. And that the only way they can have any hope standing before a holy and just God is in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who came and died and rose again so that they could be freed from their sin. Like this woman in this text, they need to come face to face with their sin and their true condition. Because look, look at, I wasn't put on reason on to verses 17 and 18, but, but look at what happens after he says that. In verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And Jesus doesn't say this to mock her. Jesus doesn't say this to be unkind to her. Jesus says, to, says this to her for two reasons. One, to show who he is. There's no way he could have possibly known this if he was any normal human being. If he was who she thought he was, just a man off, off the street, there's no way he could have possibly known about her sin. He has to be someone or something supernatural. But two, not only that, not only is he showing her who he is little by little, but she's showing her who she is. He's making her come face to face with her sin. And like this woman, those around us, they need to come face to face with their sin and their true condition before God outside of Christ, so that then, once we convince them of their thirst, we can say, yes, you're parched. You're dying of thirst. You're dying eternally of thirst. Here's this living water offered by Jesus Christ. Then we can show them the grace. We can show them the mercy. You are a sinner who deserves hell, but in the grace of Christ, the Lord has offered you heaven. He has offered to take your sins off of you and place upon you the righteousness of Christ himself. May we love those around us enough to do everything we can to awaken them to the seriousness of their sin and the glory of the gospel. May we love them enough to point to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who quenches our eternal thirst for Yahweh. Now real quick, we're not going to go through the rest of this account, but I do want you to see how this account ends. I don't want to leave you on a cliffhanger. So, we go through in verses, verses 16 through 26. They, got, they get into this discussion concerning the temple and, and true worship. And it's a, a beautiful conversation of Jesus being patient with this woman and, and kindness, carrying on this conversation. And then we get to verse 25. And this woman, you can tell she's kind of done with this conversation, kind of done with Jesus. She, she doesn't know who this guy is who's coming in and, and talking about her personal life and, and talking about this living water, but she just wants to be done with it and go back home. And she says in verse 25, 
The woman said to him, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. He, he was called Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. This is just a, we'll all get to, we'll all get to heaven and then God will sort it all out. That, that, kind of, that kind of thinking. And then Jesus, excuse me, Jesus says in verse 26, I speak to you am he. This Christ you're talking about. This Messiah who's going to come and set all things to right. He's the one who's revealed your sin to you. He's the one who's offered you this living water. He's the one who has been talking to you. And then jump down to verse 28. You have, you have the disciples come back in verse, verse 27, and they're shocked to see Jesus talking to this woman. And then verse 28 says this, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come! See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What's the whole reason she came to that well? To draw water. To put it in that jar. And I don't think it's a mistake that John tells us here. I know it's not a mistake that the Spirit has revealed to us here. She leaves the jar. She doesn't care about that anymore. Now, eventually she's going to go back because she's still going to have physical thirst. But in this moment, when she has the Son of God revealed to her, her, her physical thirst means absolutely nothing because she has had her spiritual thirst quenched. And she goes into the town, this town that knows her, that knows her reputation, that knows the men who she's been with. Probably a lot of the men that she's been with is there. And she says, come see this man. Could this be the Christ? And then you flip over and you look at verse 39. And because of the witness of this woman, 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And then you find out a little bit later that they are more confirmed because they go back to the woman and they say, we believed initially because of what you told us, but now we have seen and we know that this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. So I want to leave you this morning with two questions and the first question is this where do you find your satisfaction another way this could be asked is what is it that you long for what do you desire in, in your heart of hearts can you say with David as the deer pants for the water so my soul longs after thee or are you distracted are you chasing after vain empty pursuits things that in the realm of eternity they have absolutely no significance at all and my second question is this if you have had your thirst quenched if you have camp if you have already come to Jesus the eternal son of god the one who quenches our thirst for Yahweh by reconciling us to him, do you freely offer this living water to those who are thirsting and panting and dying around you? We are surrounded by a world whose spiritual throats are, are parched. They have this thirst and they don't know what it is. They have this longing and they have no idea what it is. But they know that what they're doing isn't working. Maybe they don't know that. Maybe it takes us telling them that and revealing that to them. But are we going to them and saying, look, you're thirsty. You're in sin. You're a rebel 
fighting against an omnipotent, holy, just God. And your only hope is to hide in the blood of Jesus Christ. Be cleansed by him so that you are no longer an enemy of God, but you are now a child of God. My prayer is that as we leave here and as we go out to the world, that we would be bold and we would be diligent in proclaiming this gift of living water as often as we can to whomever we can, whether they'll listen to us or not. And in so doing, we'll always be pointing people to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who quenches our eternal thirst for Yahweh. Let's pray. Father God,